So, welcome to Season 6. This is going to be an interesting season to go through. I've got a couple things to talk about, and a few things to talk about literally right off the bat. Looking at my notes, it's actually interesting. I have more to talk about the behind-the-scenes aspect of Equinox Part 2 than I do the episode itself. So for once, I've decided to switch it up a little bit. Rather than talk about behind the scenes, then the episode, we're going to talk about the episode, then behind the scenes. Because in my opinion, the behind the scenes perspective here is more important. And I usually try to end strong with all my videos. I try to end with whatever big point I have to make. So let's talk about the episode properly. First of all, it's extremely noticeable how Janeway pretty much at every turn tries to utterly and completely displace blame. There's an actual psychological term for this, which I of course don't know because I don't know proper terms, but I, I, that's why I just use the term, I call it displacement. In other words, well this isn't my fault, it's your fault! You're the one who caused this, you know, that kind of a thing. And it's interesting to note that she constantly harps on the idea that the Equinox are their real enemies, not the people actually attacking them. Now, in the interest of fairness, in the interest of total honesty, yes, there is a degree of logic behind that. But that logic is very flawed and warped and has a twisted path to get there, doesn't it? The fact that she is so utterly dismissive about the idea of communicating with the aliens, or even dealing with the aliens, is just kind of laughable in the face of the fact that if you think about it, if they didn't form a long-term solution to the aliens, getting the Equinox crew it doesn't really help them in any given way, because all that's going to do is leave them with the same alien problem the Equinox have had. In fact, I wonder if anybody thought about the long-term ramifications of this. Remember, Equinox has come a very long way on these aliens. And they're still attacking the ship. They can still track to wherever the ship is with whatever dimension-hopping ability they have. Which means they could probably keep doing that for quite some time, if not basically infinitely. Which means, what's to stop these aliens from continuing to attack, oh, I don't know, Earth? Once they finally got back home? Kind of short-sighted thinking there, actually. But that's just the first of a, a series I call Doesn't Make Sense. Now, I actually only have like five points on the Doesn't Make Sense list. But as I was going through the episode, there were several things that just made me go, that doesn't line up. The reasons why this episode has so many structural and writing problems will probably become more apparent when I get to the behind-the-scenes section. Let me just go ahead and start off by saying this. While this actually is an episode with some good scenes, I don't like this episode. Like, re-watching part one, I was actually surprised, because I actually enjoyed the episode. And the reason I was surprised is I usually consider the Equinox as one episode, like an idiot, and I usually consider it towards the bottom of the list of Voyager, and that's saying something. But that's because of part two. But let, let's just move on, let's move on. So the next note I have, uh, let's see. Oh, yes. So, one person actually uh, asked me, in real life, when we were discussing this episode, I don't. he didn't understand why Captain Ransom refused to surrender when offered. Try to keep in mind that, as we established in the last episode, and I, I pointed this out, Janeway has no particular interest in mercy or discussion or reasonability. She is extremely uh, entitled. I'm going to use that word. I hate using that word. But it's true in here. She's extremely entitled in the fact that she believes she is in the right, the end. And she's looking down upon them and placing judgment upon them. All that stuff I talked about in the previous episode. So there's really no viable reason for Ransom to think that their things would be any better other than the fact that they might get warm food if they happen to join her. And in fact, that might not even be true. Given what he's seen, granted this may or may not be true, but it would be reasonable for Ransom to assume that she might actually try to be cruel to him and his cruel. Now I know what you're thinking. How could, you know, torture? No. Much worse than torture. 
Imagine if you're in the brig for the next 30 years on Voyager. And imagine for a moment that as you're in that brig, you are served cold food. As in food that was prepared and then allowed to go cold, pretty much just as a spit in the face. Just to emphasize that you don't get a warm meal every day. Think about that for a moment. And tell me, really tell me, that you think that would be outside of the Janeway we see in this episode. It is interesting to note that Chakotay demonstrates way better tactical prowess than Janeway in this episode. I say that's interesting because it's one of the few character points that actually makes perfect sense to me. Chakotay is a better tactician in every way than Janeway. And ironically, that has actually been consistently portrayed throughout the series. I once again bring up my point, I know this is like the 50,000th time, that maybe Chakotay made it, should have either been the captain or the co-captain or maybe the military captain of the ship, or military commander of the ship, with Janeway being in charge of the more logistical um, administration side of things. Although, considering he's also a better people person... Anyways... <clears throat> um, that brings me to my next point. So, Voyager is an Intrepid-class uh, starship, and the Equinox is a Nova-class starship. Now, forgive me for flexing my, my incredible powers of logic here, but the, the Intrepid is a better ship than the Nova, even if both of them are brand new. Now we have the modified, augmented, more powerful uh, Intrepid of the Voyager versus the dilapidated, barely functional Equinox Nova. And yet, for some reason, consistently throughout the episode, it is portrayed as if the Equinox is capable of holding off the Voyager. Now... I'm gonna, I could already hear the defense in favor of this. I'm going to go ahead and, and discuss that real quick. The defense is the fact that the Voyager is not trying to defeat the Equinox. They're trying to uh, subdue them. And it is infinitely harder to take in a ship alive than it is to simply blow them up. I'll, so I will grant you that point. I really will. But I don't think the writers thought that far through. I think the point, based on the way it's presented, is... And I've talked about this before. A, in Star Trek, the writers always want there to be some kind of threat right? And I have talked about how difficult it is to make threats against a crew who are as advanced as Voyager is. I mean, they have ridiculous levels of tech on their ship, right? And I've talked before about this, remember? I mean, we've had whole discussions about this exact topic, so I don't need to rehash that. I think this was them simply trying to make the Equinox a threat to Voyager and not really thinking it out as much as they could have. For example, in one given scene, the Equinox escapes Voyager by going down into the atmosphere. And Voyager chases them. Voyager is the one that breaks off first. And then they treat that as if the Equinox gets away. Even though the Equinox also breaks off afterwards and then just tries to run. I, I <laughs> like It's like they didn't actually accomplish anything there. But in addition to that, and this is the part that really irks me, the Equinox is treated as if it's handling better in atmosphere. Do keep in mind, the Intrepid is a ship that is designed to land and has flown through atmospheres more than once. So, just doesn't quite make sense. Then we go into the fact that Janeway really crosses the line with that crewman. I made a tactical risk that he would break under pressure, despite the fact that there's nothing indicating that. I mean, I'm not sure if Janeway actually believes her nonsense on that scene, or if she is simply flat-out lying, because both of those are possibilities. I also uh, do like what Chakotay did after that. 
Chakotay has always been pretty good at finding that sort of compromise middle ground thing. And this has, been, again, been consistent in his character. So, okay, fine. You won't betray your captain. Will you help us with another solution to this problem? Which is like, yes, yes, God. Uh, very well done scene there, if a bit terrifying. But there is absolutely no denying that Janeway way went over the line on that. And then she relieves Chakotay of duty. Which he also does without hesitation. Keeping in mind, this is the same Chakotay who pr abandoned a promising career, officer path, I want to stress, career, in Starfleet, which, which is command track, in other words, in order to go join the Maquis, and he's just okay with this. Uh, that's point, what are we up to, three, I think, now, on the don't make sense thing? Speaking of which, speaking of which, there's actually two other things, and I just want to point these out because these don't make sense, and I'm just going to move on. So first of all, we have a skeleton crew on the Equinox, right? That's been established many times. They have, uh, I think they actually give a number, but it's something like 12 crewmen left, and that's it. That's counting the captain. That's all they've got. And they managed to hold seven of nine against her will. In fact, I could argue that this is two doesn't make sense counters. I'm not going to. Because not only do they hold her against her will, she at no point in time makes any attempt whatsoever to escape. This is the same Seven who effortlessly walked off of Voyager when her uh, when she thought she heard that Borg signal, remember? Now, granted, I did think back then that that was a little over the top, that she just so effortlessly overrode the entire ship and got away scot-free. It was a little bit too much, but this is a little bit too far in the opposite situation. This is ridiculous. Keeping in mind, she still has... Her injector tubules, she still has her nanoprobes, she still has her genius IQ, and her enhanced strength and endurance, and the ability to project Borg shields, and she is just totally powerless, for some reason. Now, we know the reason, this is again, I hate to say this is an example of bad writing, they needed her to exist as a moral dilemma for Ransom. And so they made her totally powerless, because it was the only way they could think to do that. Because they didn't think their options through. Which brings me to the next and final doesn't make sense section. So they delete the doctor's ethical subroutines, and he immediately turns into Mr. Hyde, basically. It can be argued that that makes sense if we argue that the doctor is secretly a freaking sociopath. But that's basically the only way to really argue that. Deleting his ethical subroutines should have turned the doctor into their worst nightmare. You know how I know that? Because that's exactly what frickin' happened for the other Doctor. You know, the one they deleted his ethical subroutines on. And so, due to the strong loyalty he had for the Equinox crew, went far out of his way in order to support that crew, because without ethics in the way of his actions, he was able to do rather clandestine and unfortunate things in order to accomplish what he wanted, a.k.a. their betterment. You'd kind of think that our Doctor, who has had five years at this point, end of season five, five years definitively, of being part of this crew and being treated well by this crew, that he would actually have some kind of loyalty to our crew. So, in other words, once you remove the ethical subroutines, it would just be more, he, they would have just basically made him much more, th that much more their enemy, you know? But instead it's as if they turn, they flip his evil switch. Is, is, it, that's literally what it is. And I'm sorry, once again, bad writing. Whenever you pull the evil switch thing, that's just a little bit of bad writing. There are ways to explain such a thing. Even Warcraft had a way to explain away the evil switch concept. Uh, and I'm not totally not talking about that here. But 
The fact that the doctor, for no reason, and they outright say a reason which is wrong for him to go evil is just... What? Now, one thing, speaking of the whole Seven not resisting thing, one thing that I thought immediately when I first saw this episode, and the funny thing is the same thought popped in my head this time, the way the Seven person in uh, Brank's, uh, uh, Ransom's uh, visual holodeck thing, his poor man's holodeck, the way that she acts and the way it functions, it made me think, and still makes me think, that Seven has actually somehow managed to tap into that, you know, it tap into the thing and is actually basically hiding within the program in order in order to either interact with him or save herself from the sur invasive surgery being done on her brain. Um, and yet at the same time, the episode pretty clearly demonstrates that, that that's just supposed to be a hallucination on the part of Ransom. I'm not sure which one of those things is actually true. Uh, and the episode is so vacuous and so filled with bad writing that doesn't actually think about itself that honestly I'm not sure the writers themselves know the answer to that. But I do leave it up for you to decide for yourself. Personally, I do find these seven hiding in their explanation to be a little more logical than random hallucinations. But at the same time, I do want to say something. So we see in this episode, we actually saw this in the last episode, so, so kudos for, for consistency. The first officer, uh, Max, was consistently a cold fish. He had no problem being suave and smooth to Bellana to her face while he was working around her back. Literally just that kind of disassociation with the kind of uh, acts he was doing was something that is very uh, indicative of, well, sociopathic behavior, actually. And so it makes perfect sense that to him he would have no problem calling alien life fuel for example. And the fact that he's the one who's like, no, I'm not going back to Voyager, screw all that, you know. I'm, I'm kind of with that, actually, and that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Ransom's change of heart also makes sense to me, and I know this is a weird thing to defend, but I've heard many Voyager fans say that Ransom's turn of heart was terrible, and I disagree. I think that's probably one of the few things they do well, and part of that is down to the acting of John Savage, who does a great job with the role, just like he did in the last episode. And the thing is, they gave, they actually gave a legitimate good reason for him to have a change of heart. A face. I've talked about this so many times in so many different aspects of my show. It is so much easier to hate or hurt or kill if you don't see the face of the person you're doing it to. And up until now, it's been identical, effectively faceless aliens. It's not like he wants to kill them. It isn't. And that is actually fairly well presented. But seeing a person that he identifies with, that he more closely relates to, a woman no less, more, it makes a more direct connection between him and the terrible actions he's taking. That's why it's the line for him. He is torturing and killing Seven in order to accomplish this goal. In other words, to put it bluntly, I don't think if he had to torture and kill... Uh, If he had to torture and kill, you know, humans, his own crew, for example, in order to make the super warp drive warp with the super dilithium, I don't think he would have because of that personal face thing. It's easier to press a button than it is to stab someone in the face, basically. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense and, and fully informs that and is a good uh, cap to his character, especially that last thing. You promise me you'll get them home. One last, uh, two, two last points before I get to the behind-the-scenes thing. So, first of all, the Doc acts without waiting. 
this is probably one of the only times that I've seen Star Trek do this, like, in general. So often, people in Star Trek act as if it's a turn-based battle. They let the other person speak, because speaking's a free action. And finish their speech before they actually start getting down to actually killing each other. So the other EMH is like, go ahead, I've got photon mines all over the place. And in the middle of his pontificating, the first doctor says, delete the program! And gets rid of him. Brilliant! Exactly what should have happened. I was actually like, yes, when that happened, finally. Um, and the other thing I want to say, and I know this sounds weird, but I'm very, very in, on board with Janeway's decision with the Equinox crew. I mean that sincerely, by the way. You don't get the privileges of our crew, but you're not going to be treated as if you're prisoners. It's a compromise. It's an in-between solution. It actually makes me wonder if it was Chakotay's idea, not hers. So rather than shoving you in the brig for 30 years, rather than letting you have free reign, you're in the middle. And based on your behavior, you can go up. She never says that outright, but it's heavily implied. You know, if you prove worth, wor worthwhile, if you prove trustworthy, then yeah, we'll go ahead and improve you to actual you know, status of being a member of the crew with normal you know, freedoms and whatnot. And I like that. That is very logical and it makes a lot of sense. All right. <sighs> Why don't we go ahead and talk about the behind the scenes? Now, I've, I actually, at, at, at great expense... <clears throat> an effort to myself, I've actually managed to get a, a direct interview with Ronald D. Moore, and I asked him very simply, you know, if, if there was one thing you could tell to the creators of Voyager, to Rick Berman in particular, is there anything that you would want to say? So, uh, Mr. Moore? You suck! Truly a, uh, a very eloquent and, and verbose man. <laughs> yes, that actually was Ronald D. Moore, if you're curious, although he wasn't talking to Rick Berman. So Ron Moore, for those of you not aware, is the gentleman who came, who worked on TNG rather extensively. A lot of the TNG Klingon stuff came from him, and he worked on Deep Space Nine quite a bit. And he he wasn't like the head writer of Deep Space Nine. That really belongs to um, Michael Piller, but he was a fairly big uh, continuity hound person. It's one of the few things I really agree with Ron Moore. Ron Moore was always about challenging the status quo, and trying to maintain a strong sense of continuity. Character continuity, string continuity, set, setting continuity, right? And I agree with those things. I also disagree with him on a lot of points, uh, rather strongly, actually. But he still has my respect as a writer. He went on to make the revamped Battlestar Galactica series, which I'm sure a lot of my viewers have seen. And that was pretty much his main thing. And Lord knows that series had some writing problems, and those writing problems can sit on his shoulders. But I think most people would still agree it was overall a net positive show, and a lot of that can also sit on his shoulders. So, like I said, he's got a lot of respect for me. Ron Moore uh, went straight from DS9 to Voyager. Now, he himself, he has this huge interview. I read the whole thing. Uh, I recommend anybody who's interested read it. It's on LCARS.com. You can just find it. Just look up Ronald D. Moore, and then L-C-A-R-S-C-O-M. -L one word. And you'll be able to find the interview, I'm sure. It'll be very easy to just Google search for that. Uh, read the whole thing. I actually decided I'm not going to quote it word for word because it is a gigantic, gigantic interview. And the only way I could... I, I can't pull out bits and pieces without losing context. And you know me. I'm all about not losing context. So instead, I'm going to try to summarize his points. He was really upset at the whole situation. He wanted to leave at the high point of his writing career. You know, he had just finished off DS9 and he had just finished off First Contact, and both of those things had been huge high points, and he, and he thought about just le walking away from Star Trek. He decided not to, came over to Voyager, effectively worked on three episodes. He was, at, he was at the Voyager staff for a very small period of time, 
And in his, you heard his own words just a bit ago, he hated it. And then he ended up bowing out of Star Trek on a very low note. And that, that was a very sour experience for everyone. Now, I am happy to report that since then, he and uh, Bernan Braga have actually rekindled their friendship, which is a good thing. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Ron Moore and Bernan Braga are actually friends and have been friends for a really long time, like in the decades range. And so I am happy that their relationship, their friendship was not ruined by Voyager. But it almost was. See... Braga, at this point, was facing a lot of stress and pressure from everyone, most notably Rick Berman. And Braga was trying so hard to really push the limits of what Voyager could be as a show. He wanted to do something new with it. He wanted to do something creative with it. In fact, and I've mentioned this before, and we're finally going to talk about it, they wanted to bring Voyager home. And this was going to be the episode in which Voyager came home. Remember, they wrote episode one without episode two in mind. I, I mentioned that yesterday, and we're going to talk about that a bit more here. And so they had basically free skate, you know, blank sheet of paper. We just have to finish up the events of one and lead into what we're going for in two. And they were going to bring Voyager home either in this episode or very, very soon into season six and continue this whole new series there. Now, there were a lot of reasons for that. First of all, as I mentioned before, they were kind of running into a creative rut when it came to the Delta Quadrant. They had just started running out of ideas and they really wanted to try something that was unexpected, something that would have really made the audience go... <gasps> Because they had that basic premise, they squandered it in the first two seasons, they started using it in the next three seasons, but they were running out of ideas for it. And let's be honest, a premise can only go so far. That is true. Now, I'm not saying that them coming back to the uh, Beta Quadrant was actually the right decision. It was a very risky decision. And that leads me to a small speech I've kind of been mentally planning in my head, so forgive me. Risks are always a problem. Because I tend to I tend to be in favor of risk-based uh, writing. I, I've mentioned this many, many, many times uh, on my show. There are so many times I have said, you know, I I think that playing it safe is overall a problem, a negative, and not something you should do. And I have said many times that I feel that you should be willing to take risks with fiction. But it's not like I don't understand that why they're called risks. It's not like I don't understand why that is a potential negative thing, why that's a problem, why it is that a risk doesn't always work out. That's kind of the nature of a risk, right? But the problem was the episode alliances. I mentioned back then, and I'm not the only one who said this, that some people say that Star Trek effectively died in the episode alliances because they took the safe and easy route. Whether or not that was the death of Star Trek, it was pretty definitively the death of, you know, the, the final death knell of Star Trek here in Equinox Part 2, where they had tons of potential to do tons of things, and they played it safe. From here on on, the next time Star Trek would actually really take a risk is with Season 3 of Enterprise, years in the future. Uh, five and a half, six years, something like that. A while. And then, the only reason they're willing to take that risk then is because Enterprise was bombing so hard in the ratings figures that it, they were actually in serious threat of cancellation despite having network support. Despite having the Star Trek name backing them. Enterprise was still in serious, serious threat of being shut down because it was doing so badly. And that's the first time they were finally willing to take risks between this episode and then. That's a huge period of time of playing it safe. Braga himself was quoted as saying that he didn't believe that they could actually pull off going back home, writing-wise. And Moore himself is quoted as saying that was probably the biggest indication that there was a problem with the writing staff. 
the fact that they believed that if they tried something new, that if they tried something risky, it would automatically fail. It's not like I don't enjoy seasons six and seven of Voyager, but from now on in, it's going to be pretty average. Pretty much every episode, if I was rating it for a one to ten, is probably going to be about a five. Nothing really super amazing. Nothing really super terrible, with a couple of exceptions. <clears throat> game, excuse me. And Rick Berman's stranglehold on the series is going to get much, much worse, because at about this point, Brandon Braga just kind of got tired of it. He got tired of pushing back, he got tired of fighting Berman the whole time, and he just kind of gave up. He himself is quoted as saying that he just was like, I'm tired of trying this. Now, this is part of the reason why their friendship was in danger, because at this point in time, Braga, again, under a lot of stress... He had Berman basically hovering over his shoulder, crossing his T's and dotting his I's, if you know what I mean. In other words, Berman was basically taking control of Braga, even though it was supposed, Braga was supposed to be the one in charge of the show. And so when Moore put out, when Ronald D. E. Moore put out several ideas for what they could do with this episode, Braga shut them down hard in a rather unpleasant way, is how it's generally described. And it reached the point where Moore actually was personally offended and insulted by his friend, by his writing, you know, his writing comrade, someone who he had been working with and done great work with. Remember, these two men wrote all, thing, uh, all good things. These two men also wrote Generations, but they also wrote First Contact. I mean, th these are just three examples right off the top of my head of things these two people have collaborated on, you know. For that to happen was a big blow, and Ron left. He, he bowed out of Star Trek. Uh, Ronald D. Moore has also gone on record many times uh, since this initial interview, which I referenced many times, which is the fact that he hates Rick Berman. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Here's your badge. Um, it is also worth noting that this... See, one of the reasons... They, uh, the, the only defense I could add for the taking it safe was this was the only Star Trek show. This is the first time this has happened since TNG. TNG and DS9 were alongside each other, and then DS9 and Voyager have been alongside each other for the past five years. Equinox Part 1 and What You Leave Behind both came out basically at the same time. And then, from this point on, Equinox Part 2 and onwards, it's just Voyager. They're out on their own. Uh, and that's kind of a scary thought. But really, this was the time to really nail it, because Deep Space Nine ended on a very strong note. Their viewing figures had actually been on a steady incline during the final season. And it's partially because of the fact that they basically had a nine-parter. The, the actual number's debatable. But, you know, a nine-parter, which was the finale. It was all one episode stretched across nine, and it was really well done. And so capping that off and having us go back, this was the perfect time to go back. I hate to keep hitting that point. But they shot it down. They kept saying, no, 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 no. Okay, fine. Now, I've had a few alternate ideas I've had. I'm going to toss out uh, a thought that leads to those alternates really quick. Some people have said there's no explanation for Janeway's actions here. I actually disagree. If you take my interpretation and Kate Mulgrew's interpretation of Janeway into account, this is perfectly in character for her. This is a Janeway who is utterly out of her league utterly out of her depth, and is completely emotionally compromised, incapable of leading and being in command. If you remember, there's this scene in Star Trek 2009 where Spock is relieved from command because he's emotionally compromised. Yes, Janeway should have been removed from command. This hit her very personally. After all she'd done, after all she'd been through, 
After all the decisions she'd made, after all the corners she cut, she put all that blame, all that hate on Ransom, and finally had someone to focus on to hate other than herself. And she should have crossed the line on that. And she did cross the line on that. But that leads me to what should have happened. She should have been removed from command. Now, Ronald D. Moore took this to another... I didn't, I didn't even actually realize until I, I was rereading um, that interview, and I actually kind of missed this. He had, an, he had an idea which is very similar to my own idea. I'll just present his idea, because it's better. Um, they should have put Janeway on trial. You know, okay, fine, we're not going back to Earth. Put her on trial. Remove her from the captain's chair. Have the next several episodes, or the next at least couple episodes, be about the fact that Janeway is not the captain anymore. That they have finally chopped her down. And they've said, nope, we're, 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 we're not having it. You are not fit to be our captain. And really show how that changes the interdynamics of the politics of Voyager. And I don't mean boring bureaucratical politics. I mean social interactions between people. Remember, they're following a command structure that doesn't really apply. Not like it used to. And they're doing that mostly out of habit. They've been doing it on momentum for the past five years. Remove Janeway from command suddenly throws that into question. And all of a sudden we have the possibility of a new command structure, or a lack of a command structure. And the idea that certain people just might start not following orders. They might still do their jobs, because there's, they, it would be very logical and sense-making for Starfleet officers to do their jobs. Or even Maquis, who understand that if you don't keep a ship running, the ship doesn't run. But they might not actually give a crap anymore about regulations, or being in the right uniform, or keeping themselves in, you know, in, up to code and up to spec. They're just doing their job now. There's a lot of possibility with that idea, which I like, and they really could have fleshed that out, and they really could have done a lot with the character, character dynamics especially. One of the stated goals of this episode was how to have Janeway rise, or excuse me, no, I'm saying that wrong, Ransom rise and Janeway fall, to see Ransom return to his humanity and Janeway lose hers. And I like that idea. And this whole trial losing captaincy is a great way to do that and have her slowly build herself back up as a character as she acknowledges who and what she is and tries to get back into the swing of being a member of the crew. Not the captain, but a member of the crew and then see where we go from there rather than what happens at the end of this episode. And that is the biggest point I want to make right here. And I'm sorry to hit this so hard, but this is the final point that Moore himself made. And this is the final point. Uh, that he comments on so many times when it comes to this episode. And he said several interviews about this episode. Granted, the thing with Braga it was the final straw for him. But the real point of the episode that got to Moore was the fact that they hit the reset button at the end. Moore was on board with at least most of the episode right up until that point. And they hit the reset button. Again, he's a continuity hound, just like I am. But in this case, even if you're not a fan of string continuity like I am... You have to acknowledge there needs to be some character continuity here, right? Janeway and Chakotay have just violently and roughly disagreed to the point where she actually relieved him from duty. And at the end of the episode, everything's just cool. Hunky-dory, no problems. Remember, this is something they had been building up to. Something they intended to exploit creatively from the writer's staff. I mentioned this back... I don't, I don't remember the episode name right now. Back when uh, they had their last disagreement. And how the pressure and how the, the friendship between the two had been broken. And how they were trying to show that in several episodes since then. I've been pointing it out as we go. This was supposed to be the culmination point. Where Chakotay and Janeway finally separate and are no longer friends. And can no longer consider themselves in trust of each other. And they were going to do something with that. That's character continuity. That's... 
something, you know? And this is Voyager in a nutshell yet again. You are inches from greatness. Inches! And yet you never quite really sees it. So, I will be seeing you guys next time.